Welcome to the Top Business Leaders Podcast. You'll learn how successful people just like you have grown their businesses, expanded their influence, and made money by writing a book. On each episode, you'll learn the inside secrets to help you create a book that can serve as a powerful marketing tool to skyrocket your business. I'm your host, Dan Janelle. I help thought leaders, business executives, and entrepreneurs write their books. To find out more and to download our show notes, go to topbusinessleaders.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome Rita McGrath, professor at the Columbia School of Business. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Dan. Oh, we're honored to have you here. You're a former client of PR Leads, and you've gone on to fame and fortune, uh, either probably not because of PR Leads, but because of your thought leadership and your actual brilliant insights into business. Uh, tell everyone a little bit more about you and what you do, and then we'll go dig into the questions. Sure. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm a professor at Columbia Business School. I also do speaking and some consulting um, in the topic area around the intersection of strategy and innovation, which is also increasingly involving a digital component. So it's really those three things coming together, strategy, innovation, and digital. And one of the ideas I'm probably best known for is this notion that competitive advantages don't last for long periods of time anymore in more and more parts of our economy. And so we need a really different playbook for thinking about strategy in that kind of a world. Fantastic. Is that what your new book is about, Seeing Around Corners? Yeah, the new book is about strategic inflection points, which is some kind of external change that makes the taken-for-granted assumptions about your business less and less valid. Um, and so it removes a constraint or it shifts an operating principle, but it changes something that changes how you need to be thinking about your business. Fantastic. Now, I'm sure people are saying to themselves, she's really smart. How do you come up with all these great ideas? You see the world differently. How does that happen? Well, I think part of it is giving yourself time to think. And, you know, I think a lot of your audience is probably incredibly busy and you're running from thing to thing to thing. And it's hard to prioritize just giving yourself that quiet time to think. Um, in the case of seeing around corners, the spark that really brought it together for me was when a friend sent me an article and the article was called, What If You Changed the World and Nobody Noticed? <laughs> and uh, the leadoff story in the article was about the Wright brothers and their famous flight at Kitty Hawk. And uh, the author, who's a historian, uh, looked back at the archives and no mention of it the day later, no mention of it a week later. It took years before any reputable news source actually figured out the magnitude of what had happened at Kitty Hawk. And I thought to myself, well, you know, that's a little bit like strategic inflection points. Um, at first, the signals are really weak. And it takes a long time for them to build up. And then they get stronger and stronger. And then they feel as though they happened overnight. But in reality, if you go back in time and look, you can see them coming for a long time. So how do you, as a university professor, take an idea like that and turn it into a book? Because I'm sure you have different resources than the average small business person. That's why I oh. cast you as a university professor. Yes. Sure. Um, so I think a book goes through several different stages. And to me, the first stage is, is there 
some kind of idea that really questions strongly held assumptions. So if I go back and look at my series of books, the very first one, which was called The Entrepreneurial Mindset, basically asked the question, how would you behave as a large corporation if you thought like an entrepreneur? Uh, the second book, which was Market Busters, was you know, how is it that we can see incredible growth emerging from places that most people think is just a boring pedestrian kind of thing? Uh, Discovery-driven growth was really a book-length treatment of how do we plan when we've got high levels of uncertainty and end of competitive advantage, which was my most recent one up until now, uh, was really about how would strategy be different uh, if you didn't have sustainable competitive advantage to count on. So I'd say the first stage of writing a book is what is the weekly held set of assumptions that you're challenging? You know, what is it about the way people take for granted things operate in the world that you actually have a different point of view on. And what I do then is I, I, I just basically collect lots and lots of ideas and concepts and notes, and I just stick them in a huge Word document. Um, and then when it comes time to to sort of get a little bit more formal about the book, what I try to do is give it a chapter structure. And at that point, it's more like having folders to put things in than it is a really formal chapter structure. But I try to think of where does the story begin? What path does it take? Where do I want it to end? And uh, at that point is often where I would bring in um, an agent or, or a third party to have a look at it. Um, and my, my agent is brutal. Uh, he says, <laughs> well, what you've got here is, is very interesting individual ideas, but it's not telling a story like a book. So um, that, that, that outside reader, I think, is, is a really helpful person. And I know you've performed that service for many, many people. And just, just sort of coming into the idea fresh, where does it hold together? Where is it weak? What's the narrative arc? And my, um, my agent actually had me do something that was super helpful. He forced me to write the book as a PowerPoint presentation. He said, if you were trying to share this with an outside audience, you know, what what would be the salient conversation you would want to have in a, say, a 45 minute presentation rather than stacks and stacks of written books? Um, and then in my case, uh, once we get through the kind of structure and we're happy with the way the chapters flow um, and, and we're happy with what, you know, has been done so far, that's when the book moves into the proposal stage. Now, just for your, read, your listeners, sorry, for your listeners who don't know what a book proposal is, it's um, basically it's a pitch to a publisher that tells them what they need to know about you and about what the book is. And the goal there is not to write the whole book. And this is a mistake I see a lot of people make. They go into a book project and they think they've got to have a whole book written in you know before they even start, which can often be so off-putting. Um, because people think, oh my God, a whole 200 page book, I'll never write that. You don't need to start with that. You can start with a 50 page um, or shorter proposal. And what you basically have in a, in a proposal is enough about yourself so the publisher knows how marketable you are, um, enough about the book so they can make a judgment as to whether it's of interest, and maybe one chapter that's fully written out. Um, and that, that's often enough. So once you get past the proposal stage, then hopefully you've been successful and connected with the publisher, a slightly different path if you self-publish. But that's the point at which you start doing the write, writing for real. And in my case, what I do is I, I just literally block off days on my calendar and nobody's allowed to schedule phone calls or meetings or anything. Um, and I devote a certain number of days. And in the case of this book, I had done a lot of work prior to the proposal. So I probably devoted three solid days to the first draft of each chapter. 
And then at this point, you've typically got an editor and you go back and forth with the editor until you're both happy with where where the book is. Um, when you sign with the publisher, typically they'll give you a deadline. So that will drive a lot of the time allocation and time that you spend uh, working on the book. And then the real work of writing a book starts because now you're into the book promotion. Once you've got, you know, the book design and everything's pinned down. And then, you know, as you know, Dan, it, it's just an over, it can overwhelm you, the amount of work required to really promote a book. Uh, so that's right, the second big phase. That's a great background. Thank you. Let's dig a little bit deeper into the role of the editor because, you know, everyone's probably thinking, you're a professor at the Columbia Business School. You are smart. What do you need an editor for? How does an editor add more value to your work? I think an editor, like a moderator in a panel discussion, um, really represents the audience. And, you know, in, in any kind of writing project, you can get to something that makes perfect sense to you uh, without really explaining it or you skip over a vital piece or you misstate something uh, that, that others don't understand. So what the editor does is make sure that your prose is clear, that you've made your point in a concise way. They get they encourage you to get rid of stuff that doesn't make any sense. Um, in the case of my editor, I had one chapter. I had to completely revise three times because he just, he said, you know, he thought it was weak and he thought, you know, given how strong the rest of the book is, he thought it would just, you know, not, not bring it to a satisfying conclusion. Uh, and thank God on the third time around, I, I got something he felt happy with. So I think the role of the editor is really to represent your reader. Um, and if I go back to something you and I worked on years ago, Dan, it, it was like the basic ingredients for a positioning statement mm -hmm. and forcing yourself to be very crisp about that. Unless you have a third party pushing you, it's really easy to end up with gobbledygook. So that's what the editor does. Fantastic. You know, what I find so refreshing is that someone with your credentials is so open to comments from someone else. Oh, I think it's essential. I think it's essential. And, um, you know, I think one of the problems that authors run into when they get well-known, especially fiction authors, you know, people who are really big household names, is people are afraid to edit them. And so the quality of their work, I think, suffers. Interesting. How did you find your editor? Well, he was part of the publisher. So um, I found my agent first and um, I met him because one of the speaker bureaus that I work with had very strong ties with his agency and he came highly recommended. And he and I had a couple of conversations in which, you know, you kind of size each other up and see, uh, mm -hmm. is this somebody I can work with? Because you have to like this person. I mean, you have to, well, you have to at least respect them. In my case, I really like them. I edit my agent. Um, and the agent is the one that sees you through the proposal process. And then once you signed with the publisher, that's when the editor takes over. Got it. Let's go back to the, the idea of ideas. I mean, you come across a lot of ideas in your, in your daily life. You probably read dozens, if not hundreds, of publications and websites. How, what makes one idea stand out in your mind that says, you know, this could be a book? Um, I think it, a couple of properties. Uh, the first is it's got to be something that's broadly applicable. So, um, you know, there are a lot of interesting ideas that are just too narrow. They're not that like the average business person might not care about them. Uh, so I think that sort of broad 
it really touches a lot of areas. And in my case, in strategy and innovation is one. I think the second one goes back to this idea of, well, what are the assumptions that are being challenged here? And one of the assumptions the most recent book challenges is that strategic inflection points happen overnight. And the, the real core challenge is, no, they don't. They take a long time. They can take your business to new heights if you pick them up early. They can cause your business to implode if you miss them. But if you're paying attention, you can pick up those weak signals early. And that's not something that was written about, that I saw written about a lot. And it was that that article that I mentioned that kind of crystallized that. So I look for that sort of, oh, that's interesting moment where you say, wow, you know, it isn't overnight after all. It really takes a long time. And I think the third thing, for me anyway, is uh, I'd like to be able to do something actionable with it. So, you know, plenty of books are kind of descriptive. Uh, They'll talk about, oh, the digital revolution, blah, blah, blah. And this is what it looks like. For me, it has to go the extra bit and be something actionable for a decision maker or a leader. Uh, If it doesn't have that element, I'm just not as interested in it, even if it's a wonderful descriptive story. Great advice. Now, your books have won awards, uh, which is fantastic. How does that whole process work? Do you apply for an award or do the gods of literary publishing scour all the books and say, aha, these these books stand out and we should give them awards? How does that process work? Well, differently for different awards. Mm -hmm. That's one that I should say. Um, In some cases, your publisher submits your book to the judging body, um, and and that would typically be something the publisher would handle. Uh, In other cases, the judging body does indeed go out and look at the crop of this year's books, and usually what they have is a catalog from all the different publishers of the books that are new for that year. Um, and and they they assign reporters to go read through them and make their recommendations about what they think should be on the long list, which is the larger list, and then on the short list, and then if you're really lucky, uh, you know, you pop up and, and actually do get an award. So, in the case of my most recent book, it was Strategy Plus Business that recognized it as the best strategy book of 2019. And my guess is it's partly because they know who I am, but also because my publisher did a nice job of of really saying, hey, this thing is very timely and relevant. And that's what an outlet like Strategy Plus Business would be looking for. Thanks for the background. Now you say timely and relevant. I've heard that major publishers take their time in actually producing a book. Did you ever have any fears that your topic could be outdated or blindsided by other books during that long publishing process? Or does your publisher work quickly? Well, you ask any author and that question and you'll get back, you know, publishers are never fast enough. And they never put <laughs> enough money into promotion. And, you know, there's the classic whining of authors about publishers and I'm sure it goes the other way around. Um, What I was worried about with this book, because I really tried to make the examples very fresh was that by the time, you know, the nine or 10 months go by that the examples would not be as current as, as I would have liked them to be. So that is, that is a concern really across the whole business book genre that, you know, the more timely, the more interesting, the more direct your examples are, the more likely they are to be made obsolete by events that unfold. So as an example in the book, now remember, this was probably written two years ago. Uh, I was laying out a scenario in which Facebook could significantly see its wings get clipped 
And my editor was like, you think Facebook's going to have problems? I'm like, yes, I do think Facebook's <laughs> going to have problems. Here's why. Right. And of course, by the time the book comes out, that's now, you know, everybody recognizes that the company has major issues. But but I really did pick that up before before the book was was written. Um, so that's an example. Yeah, I, I made the mistake of uh, including an anecdote in my book about Papa John. And uh, shortly thereafter, there were all sorts of problems with that company. And it was not oh, quite the shining example that I hoped it would be. <laughs> oh, I know. And all those business authors who wrote about Enron, I mean, your heart has to go out to them, right? Uh, true. But it's also kind of interesting to look at good to great and see how many of those companies have withstood the test of time. And I think yeah. many of them are still in business or have leadership positions anymore, which I'm not quite sure what that says. Well, uh, there's a lot that don't. So here's another thing, Dan, that mm-hmm. I think is worth remembering. If if you think about the business book genre, we can learn from companies even if they get themselves into strategic trouble. And my theory would actually predict that it's almost inevitable that there's going to be some degree of strategic t- trouble that a company gets into because you have these very dynamic markets. It doesn't mean there's nothing we can learn from them. So I'll take a case, uh, the case of Dell computers. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I first started teaching at Columbia Business School, my God, you could not move down the hallway for piles of case studies about how awesome Dell was, like on every dimension of its business model. But the trouble was it was easy to copy. So other computer makers said, well, we can make computers to order too. And, oh, we can do negative working capital too. And, you know, and eventually Dell got to be the commoditized end of that industry and basically had to take themselves private to come back again as now a major, you know, services provider after having combined with EMC and and so forth and so on. It doesn't mean there was nothing to be learned from Dell. It means competition caught up with them. And I think as a business book writer, that's one of the things I have to keep reminding people because it's like, oh, there's nothing we could learn from Nokia. There's nothing we could learn from Dell. And today there's nothing we can learn from GE. And that's not right. You know, there's a lot you can learn from those companies. Um, It just may not be what their strategic decision was at the time that they got into trouble. It could be a what not to do in in, in, in the light, in the light of history. Um, mm. I've noticed that some of your books uh, you had a co-author. What do you look for in a co-author, and what tips can you give us on the joint writing process? So, with a co-author, I look for someone who's not a duplicate of the way I think. Uh, so, someone who has their own original ideas to bring to the party. In the case of my first book, we were approached jointly by Harvard Business Review Press to write the book. So we were kind of commissioned to do it together. So it wasn't really a question of my choosing him. It was sort of a a joint effort that we uh, prepared then. One thing I would say to your listeners who are female, um, there's a ton of research evidence that when you write with a man, and this is not fair, this is not right, but this is reality, that the amount of credit you get disproportionately goes to the man. Hmm. So for your female coaches and consultants who are considering writing, I would I would really advise you to do it either on your own or with another woman. I wouldn't I wouldn't co-author with a man, I think. And the reason I say that is, you know, my first three books did really, really well as co-authored books. They were great, you know, they were very well received critically and so forth. But for me, I didn't really see the, the, the sort of massive upswing of interest until I wrote a book on my own. And how have you used that book to leverage your business and to grow your business? The end of competitive advantage? Um, well, I think... Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I think um, the first the first major uptick that I saw was in the level of interest people had in speaking. 
Um, and because I think, and this gets back to the core idea, right? A lot of people, the, the idea of transient advantage, the notion that we're working with these outdated strategy tools and that the strategy toolkit we've got doesn't fit their reality, that really resonated with people. And so they said, well, we'd love to have you come along and talk to our senior team and see how this would affect us. We'd love to have you look at our strategy plans. So I'd say it really fit in the workshops, the speaking, and to some extent, the consulting kind of webinars idea. Um, at Columbia, clearly, there was a lot of interest in people to take my courses, uh, which is another part of my life. Um, and, and that sparked a tremendous amount of interest the, the following few years. People really saying, hey, we have to, we really want to learn about this. This is new. Do other professors at Columbia, do they write as much as you do or... You know, it's all over the map. Um, most of the management professors have one or more books or chapters. Um, I mean, everybody in the place writes academic articles because that's kind of what we are paid to do. <laughs> so there's always there's a lot of kind of thought leadership stuff that goes on there. Um, some people prefer, you know, writing articles and doing more academic things than doing something that would be more of a popular outreach. So I'd say there's a mix. Interesting. Uh, do you feel the need to come out with a new book every two to three years, or does the mood just strike you or the idea hits you and said, I got this, this is an idea? Um, you know, it's a bit of a mix. The End of Advantage came out in 2013, right toward the end of 2013. So it was six years. Um, and I'd say at about the, th the third year mark, I started to think about, well, there were two things. I started to think about what would come after that, right? And the second thing was people started to ask me, well, how do I know about timing? And timing came up again and again and again in my talks and in my conversations with leaders about, you know, how do I know when things are going to change, when things are going to turn? How, how would I begin to think about that? And that began my journey looking at strategic inflection points. I should also mention... Um, before I sort of settled on that idea, I'd been collecting a bunch of different possible ideas. So one was, uh, I was very interested in unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. um, and it turns out unintended consequences are really, really hard to study <laughs> because they're so hard to see ahead of time. And I, I, you know, flogged away at that for a while and then eventually just um, did that, that went away. And then the other idea that I was really playing around with was complexity and I couldn't find the right hook for what a book about complexity would be like that was different enough from what people like the um, the uh, Santa Fe Institute had done and what other people writing on complexity had done. But you'll see they're kind of directionally consistent with this notion of inflection points. There, there, there's sort of there's enough common ground there that it wasn't wasted work. You know, it was it was it, it was providing more of a context. And I think one of the mistakes that new authors especially make is um, they think that's wasted time. You know, if, if I can't say directly how this chapter or paragraph or whatever is going to fit in, in the final copy of the book, um, it's not, it, it's a waste of my time. And I really don't think it is. I think you need to spend some time kind of stewing, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and then ruminating uh, before you start to see the outline of what you really want to be talking about. That's a great answer. I wish I had asked that question about what ideas you turned down. <laughs> that, that's wonderful. Reed, as we wrap up here, why don't you tell people a bit more about how they can buy your book and what kind of services you provide to the general public or the, the corporate world and how they can uh, work with you? 
Absolutely. So my own website is very creatively called readamagraph.com. <laughs> so you can find me there. I do a monthly newsletter in which I try to look at big strategic changes in different sectors every month. So uh, um, I've done construction, I've done packaging, I've done a whole bunch of different things. So if you're interested in what I'm thinking about, that that's a good thing to do. You can just sign right up on the webpage. The book is called Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. And the easiest way to get it is to go to the book's website, which is seeingaroundcornersbook.com. So seeingaroundcornersbook.com. In terms of working with me, I work with companies, as you know, Dan, in a lot of ways. Um, I do speaking. I do some management retreats. I design workshops. And, of course, there's an educational component uh, to what I do. Easiest thing to do is uh, there's a form right on my website. Just fill that out. And um, somebody from my team will get right back to you. Thanks for listening to Top Business Leaders, the only podcast that shows you exactly how people just like you have built their businesses by writing a book. If you'd like to write your book but don't know where to start, you can find great information at writeyourbookinaflash.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another insightful interview to help you become a top business leader.